Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the tiny letter of Philemon. Philemon uh, is 25 verses long. It is probably constitutes only one page in your Bible, maybe two if you're if you're lucky and have a lot of footnotes. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on the back table there. Larry's got some in his hand. Um, he'd be happy to hand you one. Just put your hand in the air and he'll bring it to you. We're in the book of Philemon. This is the second week we'll spend in Philemon. And we'll spend five all together. But like we did last week, we're going to read through the entirety of, of the letter um, and get our minds around exactly where, where we're at. So I'm going to read this for us, these 25 verses, and then we'll dive in and explore some, some things contained here. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and then the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become more effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now, indeed, he is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending you my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, say, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So you'll remember last week, as we plowed through this text, these 25 verses, we sort of set the stage. Um, there's a significant story going around this letter. Uh, the letter is addressed to Philemon. Philemon was one who, who, uh, who Paul had met probably about seven-ish years earlier in, uh, in Ephesus, when Paul was on a three-year stint in Ephesus, planting and working with the church there. 
He moved to Philemon is, that is, moved to Colossae to help out with the church plant. You see, verse 23 makes reference to Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who planted the church in Colossae. He moved there to plant the church, and I think that probably, most likely, Philemon went with him. Somehow now Epaphras is in Rome with Paul in jail. But this church is planted, and, and being relatively wealthy, Philemon hosted the church in Colossae in his home. So in his house, probably a group similar to our size, they were together in Philemon's home, and that's where they worshipped, and that's where they would read letters such as the one that Paul writes here to Philemon. They would sing and they would pray as well. And somehow, by a peculiar providence, uh, Philemon has this slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus is not a good slave, and he wound up running away, and this is the peculiar providence. There are strange provision. And Onesimus runs into Paul, who happens to be in, in prison, like along with Epaphras in Rome. Who knows how that happened? We're not sure. The Bible doesn't give us a clear picture of how that happened, but we know that it did. And Onesimus, through the witness of Paul, he trusts Jesus. He becomes a believer. He becomes a Christ follower. And part of that transformation that occurs is that he finds himself in a position where he feels compelled to return to his master, Philemon. Onesimus says, I must now return to my master, Philemon, despite the potential consequences that might accompany this. I'm sure that Paul was in, in favor of this, knowing what he writes about authority. And so Paul, uh, so Onesimus rather, along with Tychicus, travel back to Colossae from Rome and hand deliver the letters as they go through as they go through Ephesus. As they come across the, the, the sea, they go through Ephesus, they deliver a letter to the Ephesians, and then they deliver a letter to the Colossians, and then finally this personal letter, Onesimus delivers it with his own hand to Philemon. And this letter is Paul's personal recommendation to receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as we see in verse 16, as a brother. And we are inclined then to believe that Philemon did just that, that he did accordingly obey what, uh, what, what, what Paul writes to him and receives him back, and that as a slave, but as a brother. Paul says that he's confident of his obedience in verse 21. He's confident of his obedience, and we can be inclined to believe that Philemon did just that. He received Onesimus back. Since we have record of this letter, it was not discarded. It was probably read before the church, and the church would have received Onesimus back into their midst. Again, not as a slave to Philemon, but as a brother in Christ. And so then last week, as we processed together the beginning of this letter, in just the first four, seven verses total, uh, we saw that Paul writes, and when he comes to the end of verse 7, he says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because, your hearts, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And so we talked about this idea of refreshing hearts and how love is the way in which, brotherly love is the way in which we as people are refreshed in the context of the local church. What does it mean to be refreshed? It means that we, uh, we see something and our soul is uplifted. We feel excited. We have a greater desire for Jesus Christ because in that moment we see, we see uh, another expressing love in a Christ-like manner. And so, for Paul, this was an incredible encouragement to hear what Philemon was doing in the midst of the Colossians. He hears of his partnership with his church. He loves his church. Paul says that he's derived much joy and comfort, again, in that verse 7. Hearts are refreshed. And this is an incredible testimony. 
This is incredible. Again, this is such a small letter. It's kind of tucked in here behind a bunch of things. And we might read it once in a while. <laughs> but it's incredible testimony to God's goodness and favor. And to how we, as people in the context of the local church, refresh one another. How we love one another. So this is the setup for the letter. Paul, although the prison cell in Rome, probably from Tychicus, the, who was from Colossae, and who traveled back with Onesimus, he was a member of the church in Colossae, he heard Philemon's love and found himself refreshed. We get this, right? We understand, we understand what it means to be refreshed when we think about the truth of the gospel as it is played out in love for one another. Uh, if you've ever read the novel by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, um, you know what I'm talking about. Where at the beginning of the novel, the character named Jean Valjean, the, the protagonist in, in uh, Les Miserables, he's freed after 19 years of hard labor. He stole bread uh, to feed his nieces and nephews. And he is sentenced to 19 years of hard labor. He earns his leave and he takes his leave and a bishop... Uh, takes in Valjean, telling him that despite the bishop's lack of material wealth or material uh, material uh, havings, he was he he knew that he needed to what he had give to others. But in Valjean's desperation, he goes back to his former life and he steals the bishop's silver. And Valjean almost immediately is caught and is brought back before the bishop. But the way the bishop responds is something that incredibly refreshes our heart and leads to uh, Valjean's transformation throughout the remainder of the novel. The bishop, rather than demanding back what is rightfully his and the forks and spoons that Valjean has taken from him, says, no, you left these candlesticks too. And he says, they were both made of silver, and he says, these are worth at least 200 francs. Why did you leave them? And in this incredible act of mercy and grace, the bishop, again, does not demand his rights. He does not demand that what is his be returned, but he refreshes the heart of Valjean, again, who experiences this immaculate transformation uh, throughout the rest of the novel. And this is the type of refreshing that we're talking about. Refreshing that doesn't demand our rights, but lays down our lives. And as we look through this text this morning... We're just going to key on one verse this morning. But as we look through this text this morning, we hope to be those people whose hearts are refreshed, like Jean Valjean, through an experience of incredible personal transformation. This is the type of refreshing that we feel as those who have trusted Jesus when we see brothers and sisters in Christ loving one another with Christ-like love. And hearts are refreshed Oftentimes we're there saying, what does that even mean? Hearts are refreshed when personal rights again are not demanded, when homes are open, when generous hearts are present, when true fellowship is experienced, where partnership in the gospel is realized, where age, race, class, those things do not divide us or prevent intimate relationship, but Jesus is magnified through unity and diversity. And last week, as we asked the question at the end of our time together, what opportunities do we have as a body to refresh the hearts of the other believers sitting around us? What opportunities do we have to walk into our week and to say, brother or sister in Christ, I understand that your position is a difficult one this week. How can I refresh your heart? 
Personally, my heart was refreshed several times this week, and as I began to think about that question that we posed last week, several things just came to mind. Someone brought us a meal just because we all happened to have the flu, but someone just brought us a meal. They had no idea we were sick. And I watched a brother and sister of Christ uh, express an incredible amount of love for another by, by stepping in and, and taking care of a significant, a sizable financial need that someone had. They didn't know how things were going to come together for them in their budget, but self-sacrificially and generosity, they stepped out in faith. And I received a report of a new community group that launched this week, who people getting to know each other, love each other at a more intimate level, spending quality time caring for one another. These are the things that refresh my heart. Now these types of refreshings came through Philemon's work in the local church. But Paul, again, has another incredible opportunity. Another incredible opportunity for Philemon. When Onesimus shows up at his door, he has another incredible opportunity for him, for Philemon, to refresh the hearts of the Colossians and of Paul by receiving Onesimus back in a manner, again, that he describes in verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more as a bondservant. Your translation might say as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and into into the Lord. So we see this appeal to this new opportunity made beginning in verse 8, where he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Here's the verse that we really want to consider this morning. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. That's the sentence. Maybe your Bible puts that in parenthesis. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. That's what we're going to key our time this morning, that one sentence. And it might be parenthetical, but it's important. So we're going to break up our time this morning into three spots. We're going to ask the question, what does it mean, what does Paul mean when he says useless? What does Paul mean when he says useful? And then what does Paul want Philemon to realize? So first then, what does Paul mean by useless? Well, we'll see in a minute here that Paul's actually playing on words. That there's actually some wordplay going on here. There are a handful of ways that I think Paul means that Onesimus was formerly useless to Philemon. I'm going to give you three ways. First, obviously, as Philemon's slave, Onesimus just wasn't around. He wasn't present. He wasn't there. He couldn't perform his duties as a slave because he wasn't there. Very simple. The word in the original language just means of no use. He's of no use. We translate it useless, but of no use. And then as we move through the verse, we see that he has now indeed become useful. We see that word translated actually said it means of good use to you. So he's of no use, but now he's of good use. And part of the reason he was of no use was because he was not there to perform his duties in Colossae in the household of Philemon. So first he wasn't there. Secondly, Paul wants to highlight Onesimus' former actions and probably attitudes. Onesimus was not pleased to be under the roof of Philemon, serving as his slave, which makes sense, because he ran away. It's not a stretch of the imagination to say that he wasn't happy, so he got out. 
They say that Onesimus' actions were useless is a bit of, it almost seems like an understatement. There's of no use. Well, I mean, he actually like harmed Philemon. Paul alludes to the fact in verses 18 and 19 that Onesimus probably stole money from him. If you look at verses 18 and 19, Paul says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this on my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. So Philemon probably stole from him. Lastly, then, Onesimus did not bear the fruit of the gospel before he was converted when he met before when he, before he was converted when he met Paul. This is the key one here. And this will lead us then into what Paul means by useful. Onesimus did not bear the fruit of the gospel because he was converted, or before he was converted when he met Paul. Christian brothers and sisters benefit, we benefit from the love from love for one another in each other's lives. Here we just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a lot of time there. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says this. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So a kingdom citizen is one who bears fruit. He bears fruit. He or she bears fruit. And that by that fruit, other kingdom citizens benefit. We become beneficial or useful to one another through bearing the fruit that the gospel brings about in our hearts and our minds. We don't build fences around ourselves, but we demonstrate to everyone the fruit that is being produced in us. And this isn't to come look at me and see how good I'm living as a Christian. That's not what this is about. What this is about is demonstrating for others the love that we see in Christ Jesus. So a kingdom citizen bears good fruit, and by that fruit, other kingdom citizens benefit. And this is the fruit of love that Paul commands by leaving for. You see, generosity, when we saw that, that phrase last week, and the sharing of faith, that generosity, that gospel partnership, that fellowship in Christ. And this is a Philippians 2-4 sort of way. We oftentimes go to Philippians 2 uh, to understand our relationship to one another. Paul says there, let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so healthy fruit does not draw attention to itself, but it expresses itself in, what we mentioned last week, the 1 Corinthians 13 sort of way. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, where Paul writes, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the love that we are called to. This is self-forgetful love. This is not a, this is not concerned with receiving. This love is not concerned with receiving as we are so apt to do in our consumeristic society, but pours itself out. That Philippians 2 passage, later in that, in that chapter, Paul would write this, this very thing to his, his readers. Verses 17 and 18 in Philippians 2 says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. What does that even mean? 
What does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says, I will be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith? A drink offering in the Old Testament usually accompanied an animal or a grain sacrifice would be sitting there next to it and it would be poured out next to it sort of as this symbol of a life poured out in service to God. Paul picks up on that theme in these two verses. He picks up on that theme and he says that I am laboring for the Philippians. Even if he is doing this in service to God on their behalf. Paul is prepared to rejoice with the Philippians even when it comes at the expense of his own life. He allows himself to be poured out for them. And then he tells them that they should do the same. Why? Because he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love endures all things. The fruit of the gospel in all of life of the believer is brotherly love for one another. Formerly, Onesimus was of no benefit to Philemon because he did not bear this fruit of love. But now things had changed. Things had changed for Onesimus. And now Paul says he is indeed useful to you and to me. So we ask the question, what does Paul mean by useful? Now, curiously enough, I think this is a fantastic piece of information that comes in this text. The name Onesimus means useful. It means useful. So Paul says, this is a wordplay, useful was useless to you. But now useful is useful to you and to me. And now even though Paul meant more than one thing when he said useless, I'm confident that he only has one thing in view when he says he is now useful or of good use to you and to me. Onesimus is useful to Philemon and to Paul because the gospel is bearing fruit in him and his love for others. So just like he was useless, probably in the primary way, and the fact that prior to his conversion, he was incapable of expressing brotherly love in a Christ-like manner, now, in Christ, he has the ability to be useful to his master, not only as a slave, but as a beloved brother, by demonstrating love. And he's not only useful to Philemon, but he's about to become of great use to everyone in his church. And it Paul himself. 1,200 miles away in Rome. So we need to pause here, I think, as we think about what Paul means by the word useful. I think we need to pause here. I think that we need to examine our own hearts. The question that we need to ask is the gospel bearing fruit in you and I? Do we recognize when the gospel is bearing fruit in others? I mentioned earlier this year that my biggest concern for our body, our small expression of the local church here in Jamestown, North Dakota, Buffalo City Church is what we call ourselves. My biggest concern is the spiritual prioritization or the health of, or the, excuse me, the prioritization of our spiritual health. Are we making a conscious effort as a people to prioritize our spiritual health? And the fruit that the gospel bears in our life is love for one another. And the fruit, that fruit comes through transformation that the gospel brings about in our hearts and minds. Prior to Christ, we are incapable of demonstrating love in a Christ-like manner. After Christ, and after we are, be, be, after we are affected and converted through the truth of the gospel, we become of great use to one another. So we have to ask the question, is the gospel bearing fruit in you and I? 
do we recognize when the gospel is bearing fruit in others? And the fruit that comes through this transformation the gospel happens through daily discipline, spirit-empowered engagement in the Bible reading and prayer and fellowship with other believers. Because in those things, what happens is we're stirred up. We're stirred up and our hearts are refreshed. We become, we come to a place where we begin to understand and know that God, through us, is demonstrating His love. When we love, when our love for others becomes apparent, our hearts, again, are refreshed. Hearts need to be refreshed through uncommon acts of love displayed for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that only happens when we prioritize our spiritual health. Now what I'm not saying is this. Now what I'm not saying is this. Don't care about your physical health. This is a major trap that sometimes, sometimes Christians fall into. This is, does not mean don't care about your physical health. It doesn't mean don't care about your mental health. It doesn't mean don't care about your emotional health. What, is that, what I'm saying is that these things need to work in tandem with one another. They need to be interlocked. You are a whole being. You have different spheres, but you are a whole being. I'm convinced that's why the command in Deuteronomy 6.5 is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We love God with all of our spheres. And my concern is that element that gets tossed aside most quickly is our spiritual health. And so we have to ask, is the gospel bearing fruit in you and I? Are we encouraged to see love display in the lives of others in your faith family, your Buffalo City Church? Sometimes, I think, I think sometimes we see an expression of love from one member of our congregation to another, and we feel more threatened by it than we feel refreshed by it. I know, look at that guy. He's really interested in, in making a name for himself. And that's an unfortunate reality that happens in the church far too often. When we see the gospel bearing fruit through love, where our hearts are refreshed. So let me just give you two things that, will, that may identify the fruits of the gospel in each other's lives more apparent. What are the things that this love is, in other words? First of all, this love glorifies God and is not man-centered. God's glory is seen as the ultimate goal of love, brotherly love between Christians. Our good comes as a result of God's glory. Making others feel nice, making others feel nice, is not the love that Paul is talking about. In fact, sometimes love looks and feels like a very difficult thing. We don't need to go anywhere else with the cross of Christ to see this. There's no other example that we have to give. The cross of Christ is a bloody mess. It doesn't look or feel good, and in fact, it's pretty difficult to stomach, and it's downright offensive. It's scandalous. And God's glory was the ultimate goal. Our good is the result, but in the midst of that act of love, it was really, really messy. So this love glorifies God and is not man-centered and does not shy away from the mess that oftentimes accompanies those two things. The second thing would just be this, and this list could go on and on, but the second thing is this. This love is self-forgetful. I mentioned this a moment ago. It really does look to the interests of others. It really does look to the interests of others. It does not consider its own. 
when your love, when the when when you love, you forget your own interests altogether. And this is hard, and this is this is really difficult. To genuinely love means to place the interests of others above your own. And so we become of use to one another through the fruit that comes through the gospel. This was not Onesimus' original state, and it's not your original state, nor is it my original state. But through the work of the gospel in our lives, Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon as one who has great use to him. So finally, then, on a grander scale, by making this statement about Onesimus' newfound usefulness, what does Paul want Philemon to realize? What does Paul want Philemon to realize? Last week we mentioned that as Philemon returned to Colossae, he also brought the letter to the Colossians back to, uh, back to them from Paul. And warrants some investigation into that little letter. Colossians 1, 4 through 8, this is Paul's opening of this letter. He writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, which it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned from it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So verse 6 there is our touch point. Verse 6 is our touch point. Paul is referring to the gospel. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood by the grace, or understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel came to the Colossians through Epaphras, clarifies that in verse 7. And in verse 6, he says that it is bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit and increasing. And that fruit is found in verse 4, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints. So the gospel has come to the Colossians and it is bearing fruit in them both faith in Jesus and love for one another. But notice how Paul wants to now expand their understanding. Notice how he wants to now expand their understanding. He also says, as indeed in the whole world. As indeed in the whole world. The Colossians have a living, breathing example of the fruit of the gospel being produced in the whole world, standing in their very midst. His name is Onesimus. Paul is saying, be encouraged. The gospel that is bearing fruit in your midst is also bearing fruit all over the world. What does that mean? Practically, in Rome, from where Onesimus just returned, the gospel is bearing fruit, it's fruit of love in Onesimus, so much so that Paul wants to keep Onesimus with him. He says in verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me in order on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul, in a prison cell in Rome, sees the gospel bearing fruit, just as the Colossians see it bearing fruit among them. 
And so we can draw out a couple of thoughts. One, there is no place where the truth of the gospel is incapable of bringing about results. There is no place where the truth of the gospel is incapable of bringing about results. Where do you find yourself this morning? The gospel is effective to get there. Where it intends to bring about results, it brings about results. There are difficult places on this earth. We know of these places where ideas opposed to the gospel are present. But the gospel breaks right through those ideas. The word of God does not return void. The human heart is the place in which the gospel is most effective. It comes to a dead, lifeless, stone-like heart corrupted by sin and makes it alive. And I don't know how many times in your life you've seen a stone come to life, but I've never seen that happen. The human heart is like a stone, dead and lifeless, and the gospel, through its very power, affects it and brings it to life. There is no place where the truth of the gospel is incapable of bringing about results. Paul expresses that to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 4 through 8. There is no place that the gospel is incapable of bringing about results. God's word is totally effective. Here's another thought. We must take notice of gospel fruit in the world at large. It's just part of the strangeness of the world that we live in, where there are 24-hour news cycles, and we can have all of this information at the touch of our hand. We can speak to someone on the other side of the globe at any moment. Our society is completely, completely in tune with all, everything that's going on in the world, and yet so out of touch. Everything is curated for us, which makes us kind of the center of our little smartphone staring universe. But the reality is, we have to ask the question, is the gospel bearing fruit in our midst? And also the question, where else is the gospel going out and bearing fruit? Paul wanted the caution, it would take a long time for a Tychicus and for Onesimus to get back from Rome to Colossae. It would take a very long time. 1,200 miles. 1,200 miles. That seems like a long ways today to get in your car and drive. They're on a ship and on foot. It was a long time. 1,200 miles. And Paul wanted the Colossians to see that even in his prison cell in Rome, this is the ends of the earth. This is the ends of the earth. Think about the most foreign and accessible place in our world today. And that's what this is for the Colossians. Rome is that. Is the gospel... Is gospel fruit happening in our midst? And also the question, where is, where else is the gospel going out and bearing fruit? Paul wants the Colossians to see that even in his prison cell in Rome, the gospel is bringing about the same results it was in their small congregation 1,200 miles away. The gospel is totally effective to bring about results no matter where or when. So as we conclude this morning, I'll reiterate this one verse, right? Verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me, or rather, formerly he was of no use to you, but now he is indeed of good use to you and to me. We become of good use to one another through the fruit that comes through the gospel. 
the fruit that comes through the gospel is brotherly love. Brotherly love is not a random act of kindness. Brotherly love is the pouring out of oneself as a drink offering, where there is nothing left, where we come to each other and where we say to one another, brother or sister in Christ, all that I am is at your disposal. And this is Paul's recommendation to Philemon regarding Onesimus. Formerly useless in many ways, now useful in the most important way. Radical love for one another is that which should define us. Buffalo City Church, radical love for one another is that which should define us. Christ is our example. We ask ourselves these questions. Did he stop what it meant coming to earth to dwell among sinful creatures? The creator God coming to earth to dwell amongst his creation. Is that what stopped him? The answer is no. Did Jesus stop when his followers asked stupid questions? How many times do we have stupid questions throughout the Gospels that the, that the disciples asked him? The answer is no, he didn't stop. He didn't stop. He didn't stop when the religious leaderships tried to trap him. He didn't stop when a disciple betrayed him, someone who walked intimately in his midst for his earthly ministry. He did not stop when he was falsely accused. He did not stop when the crowds turned on him. He did not stop when a disciple denied him. He did not stop when he was flogged. He did not stop when he was mocked. He did not stop when he was murdered. It is the act of love that serves as our example and empowers our love for each other. Love that falls short of this example is of no use to us. Love that seeks to follow that example is of good use to us. And love understands that apart from Christ, we can only engage in weak, underdeveloped, deformed, culturally driven expressions of pseudo-love. Random acts of kindness are not this love. Loose connections are not this love. Self-love is not this love. This love stops at nothing to see others know God and grow and bear fruit. Buffalo City Church this morning, we need to ask ourselves the question, is the gospel bearing fruit in you and I? We need to ask ourselves that question. Are we pressed to love one another in the way that Jesus loved us? And pouring himself out as a drink offering. We stand before you as those who are laboring for the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is going out and bearing fruit, and there is much striving on our behalf. You and I must understand that we come to this as sinners saved by grace. But in the midst of that understanding that we are sinners saved by grace, we labor, we toil, we struggle, we strive. We do not cease. Our lives too far, too often, are that which expresses very little love. We think about ourselves far too often. We think about others very, very little. We think about how we might get comfortable in a situation that might be a total mess. But again, the cross of Christ reminds us that we do not, as the people of God, come before you 
as those who know and understand that love is anything short of a mess. Love is a complete mess. It is a total mess. If you think anything less than that, and I, I, would, I, would, I would submit to you that the, love, that the gospel is not bearing the fruit of love amongst us. We need to set down this week and we need to seriously consider the gospel bearing fruit among us and love that expresses itself in pouring itself out for one another. Far be it from us that we stop at anything short of being poured out as a drink offering in service to God through love for our brothers and sisters. And by doing so, we will become, like Paul says to Philemon about Onesimus, we will become of great use to one another. Let's pray.